Um, so I, while our first petition is uh, forgive us our debts as uh, we have forgiven our debtors, I must uh, tell you that when preparing this week, I was chatting through with Mark going, man, there's just so much stuff in this. I, I don't know if I can do it. And so what we've done is we've decided to break this up into two sermons. We're going to look at forgive us our debts um, to, tonight. And then next week, we're going to look at the massive task and difficult challenge as Christians to forgive those who have sinned against us, no matter how much they have sinned, to totally forgive. How does that look? And so, man, that's next week's problem. But this week, we're going to be looking at for um, to look at forgiveness. How do we ask for forgiveness? Now, there are uh, there's a minority in the in the global church and people who would argue that Christians don't need to ask for forgiveness. Um, they would say that once we have been justified by faith, that there is no need for us to come to God and ask for repentance. Now, what do we mean by justified by faith? And this is a biblical Christian doctrine that we hold to strongly as a church, is that we believe that Christ has died for our sins and that he has taken our sins away. He has removed our sins from us, our past, present, and future sins. And uh, we have been set free of our sins. But there's also a thing called what we would say imputed righteousness. Christ has not only taken away of our sins, but he's given us his righteousness as well. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see us as a sinful people, but he sees us as righteous, as Christ's righteous, beautiful, wonderful core to the Christian faith. But then people go, well, if that's the case, well, then why ask for forgiveness going forward? Why should we do that at all? And um, we kind of see Jesus speaks into this in a, in a passage in John 13, verses 9 and 10. We see that, you know, you might be familiar with the story, Jesus is about to die, and uh, he goes around, he starts to want to wash his disciples' feet. And he comes to Peter, and as he comes to Peter to start washing his feet, Peter says, Lord, you are not allowed to wash my feet. And he's not doing that out of disrespect, but rather out of honor. Because this was a task that was given only to those who were slaves. Most of the time, Gentile slaves. Not, never mind the king of kings, lord of lords. And so he says, Lord, you, you can't do that. And Jesus kind of rebukes him a little and says, well, if you don't let me do it, you can have no part of me. And Peter responds like this. He says, uh, Lord, uh, Peter says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. So he, go, he kind of goes to get a bit extreme. Like, well, if that's the case, watch all of me. Like, just just bathe me completely, like, wash me. And Jesus uh, responds to him and turns it from the physical to the spiritual. And he says this. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need a wash except his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, not every one of you. Not every one of you referring to Judas, because Judas was going about off to betray Jesus. And so he's saying, man, you are clean, but your feet need to still be washed. There's a little bit of dirt that needs to be cleaned. You're completely clean, but there's dirt on your feet. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on this verse, and he says this, There is only one washing of the entire person, that is justification. But having been justified, and remember we just spoke what that is, as we walk through this world, we become soiled and tarnished by sin. That is true of every Christian. Though we uh, know we have been forgiven, we still need forgiveness, still for particular sins and failures. And so as he says, we've, we've been washed clean by justification, but as we walk through this, this world on its dusty roads, our feet become tarnished with soil. 
They become dirty, and there's this need for us to come and have that cleaned. And really, too, even if we just look at the Sermon of the Mount, I mean, Sermon of the Mount, the, the Lord's Prayer, when we look at it, it would, it would be rather strange to suggest that this particular uh, petition or the prayer itself was for the unbeliever or part of the Old Covenant. And the reason for that is because the very first line suggests something else, right? Our Father. It is only a person who has been justified by Christ that you are able with legitimacy to be able to call God your Father. It is only when you come to know Jesus are you adopted out of death and brought into the family of God. You're made a child of God through Jesus' work and through the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the only way it could happen. And so even if we look at the next three petitions after that, the first three that we've already discussed, they are only petitions that believers can pray. Hallowed be your name is something only a Christian can pray. Lord, may your glory be known in this world. May, may people see your wonderful name. May, may your holiness be exalted. May you be, all your glorious be exalted because I want you to know that only a believer delights in the holiness of God. An unbeliever in the, in, in the presence of this holy God in which we just sung about and they see it with truth does not rejoice but is fearful as their sin is exposed. The, the next one, your kingdom come, can only be prayed by a Christian because when we say, your kingdom come, Lord, would you rule in this world and would you rule in my heart as well? An unbeliever does not pray that, but rather they rebel against the king of kings. Thy will be done, Lord, would, would not my dreams, my desires, my wants, my satisfactions happen, but Lord, your will for my life, may that happen. Man, a believer does not turn to Christ because most of the time they are wanting to live their own life out. So then to suggest that this petition or this prayer is not a part of for the believer is quite outlandish. And so there is this need for us as Christians to make sure that we pray this prayer. We pray, Lord, forgive us of our sins. And when we do that, I want to let you know that there is such a peace There is such a liberation. There's a life change, a character change, a freedom that you can possess in Christ when we are able to do this and do this well. So how do we do that? Well, that's why we're going to look at Psalm 51. Let's turn there. Psalm 51 is going to give us an indication of how to do that. We're primarily going to be unpacking verses uh, 1 to 5, but we will read the whole thing because I think it's a, a really, really cool psalm. Let us read it. This is David crying out to God. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hassop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities." Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
Then I will teach transgressors your ways and, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice and I will give um, all I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and the whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered at your altar. This psalm here that we have just read is one of the most beautiful and most famous uh, confessions that we see throughout all of Scripture. In fact, it comes from a rather famous occasion that David uh, uh, prays uh, this and writes this prayer down or this worship to God. Um, it happens when David is a king, he should be at war, and he's not. He's walking around the palace roof, and as he does so, and as he's looking around at his kingdom, admiring all that he has, he notices a lady called Bathsheba having a bath. And he likes what he sees, and he calls her home, and he sleeps with her. She is married, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't stop David. He sleeps with her. He sends her away, and she comes knocking on his door a little later on saying, I am pregnant. Um, he finds out that her husband is at war fighting for him. And so what he does is he comes up with a good plan. Well, I'll bring Uriah home, who was her husband. And what I'll do is, well, then he will come and he will sleep with his wife. She will fall pregnant and A will be, well, he will think she fell pregnant. Then A, everything will be great and uh, it won't matter anymore. Well, Uriah is an upright standing man. When he comes back from war, he refuses to go be with his wife. All his mates are fighting at war, so he sleeps in the palace's steps. And so David gets a little annoyed by this, and so he comes up with another plan. What he's going to do is going to make sure Uriah comes and eats at his table. He's going to get him really drunk. And when he's drunk, he's going to then act foolishly and go home to be with his wife. He gets him drunk, and Uriah, still being an upright man, even though he is drunk, goes and sleeps in the servants' quarters, not with his wife. And so David gets annoyed, sends him off to war with a messenger, and the messenger gives the commander, you will put David, uh, Uriah on the front line, and when Uriah is in the most hectic situation in war, pull back and let him be killed. And this takes place. A couple of months go by, he marries Bathsheba, um, and uh, a pro prophet Nathan comes knocking on the door of David and comes to him and just says, David, I've got a story to tell you. There's this man who has not you, this wonderful sheep, he, he lamb, and he cares for it. He loves it. He only has one. It's his prized possession. But there's another man nearby, a rich man, who has many sheep, many, many, many sheep. And he has a, a, um, has a, uh, has a big fat party, and he wants to host guests, and he needs to have a sheep killed. But he doesn't want to kill his own. He takes that man sheep, and he has it killed. And David, with a frustration and anger that's burning in him, shouts out, going, well, that man deserves to die. And Nathan, with probably the most poignant application to a sermon ever, looks at David and says, you are that man. And it's like David's veils of his eyes are lifted up. And he sees for the first time properly the depth of his sin and the actions that he has done. And he breaks into this wonderful, wonderful prayer of confession to God. So what I want to say this, this, this evening is that we have the opportunity through the darkest moments and the deepest sins that we have ever, ever experienced 
ones that feel like you're never going to be able to get out, ones that you feel that you are shattered, that if we understand biblical repentance for believer well, and we do it, that we are able to come out the other side, but not just out the other side, but able to come out the other side whole. We are able to come out as a, a person who has been set free from the past. We're able to come out with none of the guilt that we're still needing to hold on to. We can be set free. And so that's what we, we, I'm hoping for us to be able to achieve this, uh, this evening. It's going, how does that look? What do we need to do? And what do we need to stop doing? And Tim Keller, who preaches on this text, who writes on this text, who wrote devotionals on the whole of Psalms, says when we look at the first five verses, there are a couple of questions we need to ask ourselves. The first is, what do we need to stop doing? What is the one thing that we need to stop doing? The second question we need to ask ourselves is, what are two things that we need to start doing? And then the last question is, how do we get the power to do those things? So those are the questions we're going to ask and hopefully answer this evening. Let's look at the first thing. What is the one thing that we need to stop doing? Let's look at verse 5. We're going to work a bit backwards this evening. Verse 5 says this, Behold, I was brought forth in the iniquity I brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. On the surface level, it seems like David is throwing his mother under the bus here, isn't it? Seems like he's uh, displaying a bit of family dirty laundry. He's kind of saying, well, I know I'm the son of Jesse, but actually, I'm not. And that's simply not the case. David is not saying that his mother actually had an affair. It might even seem that David, if that was the case, would be blaming his mother for his sin. Well, my mother was an adulterer, and so, man, I just, oh, man, I, I was just, it's in my blood. I would have had to, I would have just, that's why I've become an adulterer. That's not what David's doing here either. And when we, uh, I know that's kind of how the English translation goes. When we look at the Hebrew, man, it just kind of doesn't suggest that at all. What it is saying is David is saying that I have been born into sin. The moment I was conceived, the moment life took place in my mother's womb, in that moment, I was sinful. I have been sinful my whole life. What he is doing and he is noticing is that he is looking back at his childhood juvenile sins and he is noticing that there is a very similar feel to it, even though this is murder and adultery. We see this, uh, Derek Kidner, brilliant commentator on the psalm, says this on this verse. He says, this crime of murder now sees, uh, uh, David now sees, was no freak event. It was in character an extreme expression of a warped creature he had always been since he was little. What he, David is saying is saying, man, when we look at our sin that was happened when we were children and we look at the extreme sins, even sins of murder, what we notice is they are like family relatives. They are of the same substance. So, so often what we would say is, yo, yo, Joe, I, I know I cheat and I lie when I need to and I do little things, but I would never murder. But really the reality of the matter is that the little sins that we do are of the same thing. They, they're not different in substance. They're not different in nature. They're the same thing. The only difference is the quantity of it. This is, some, this is small amount, but this is a large amount. And he's saying, I, I've just realized that I've always been like this in character, that actually none of this is any different to the way I've, I've always been. I've always been someone who is like that. I've always had the capacity to do these things. And that's important for us to grasp, is that we have the capacity as human beings who have been born into sin, like David, all of us have been born into sin, to do great, horrific things. 
I'm not saying you will do it, but you have the capacity to do it. It's, it's like if you grab two seeds, both similar, both the same from the same tree kind of scenario, and we went and we t- took one and we planted it in fertile soil, we watered it, we uh, gave it compost, we did all those things. I don't plant trees. I just, <laughs> Richard and I were talking about it earlier. I don't, I don't grow things very well. Often things die. But nonetheless, if we did all the things that we are needing to do to make this tree flourish, and we do it, it will grow up into this massive tree. But if we take that other seed, and we don't put it in fertile soil, we put it on rocky ground, we don't give it all that it needs, we don't water it, we don't do that, it might grow, but it will be stunted, it will never reach its full potential. But nevertheless, those two seeds have the same capacity. And the same thing is with us. We have the capacity to do great things that we should not do. And we need to make sure that we master it, we get hold of it, and we know it. Because this is the reason why we need to know this. The reason why we need to know it is because if you're not aware of your great capacity, you'll never be on guard for any bad things. If you think you are not capable of committing adultery, then you will never be on guard of how friendly you are getting with the opposite sex. Because you'll never, and one day you'll wake up and you've done it. How did I get you? Shocked and horrid. But actually, this has always been a part of your nature. And one of the things that we need to stop doing, and the, the thing that we need to stop doing, is that we need to stop denying that we are capable of great stuff. And by great stuff, I mean great bad stuff. We are capable of doing the horrific. And it is important for us to stop that, stop denying it. And that will help us make sure that we don't do great things, great bad things, and we don't do horrific things in the future. It is important for that. So what are the two things that we need to start doing? Well, there are two elements to repentance. Because you see, there's this type of repentance that is one that includes grief, emotion, includes crying, it includes asking for forgiveness. There's this real sorrow, and you wish you had never done it, but at the end of it, you never change. Anyone else experienced that before? I certainly have. I never do that again, and then I do it again. How did I do it again? I promise, Lord, I promise I'll never do it again, and I'll do it again. But why do we have that type of repentance? Man, there is a type of repentance that leads to life, that leads to character change, that leads to freedom, and that's what we're pursuing after. So how do we get that? How do we get that? Well, the first thing is uh, we need to have a full confession of sin, and the second one is we have a deep renunciation of sin. So let's look at that first one. We need to have a full confession of sin. Look at verse 4, part of the second part of verse 4. It says this, And I have sinned and done what was evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. I want you to notice here that David is giving a full confession of faith, I mean, of his sin. A full confession of sin. He is not shifting blame. He's not uh, trying to get uh, qualify the reasons why he has done something. He's not trying to make excuses for it. But what does he say? I have done evil in your sight. He, notice he does not say, I have made a mistake. Notice he doesn't say, I have had a lapse or I, I slipped up. He, he just owns it properly and says, I have done evil in your sight. You see, because most of the time when we do repentance and we ask for forgiveness and we are sorry and we're grieving and we're emotional, we say, oh, Lord, I forgive me, but if you knew how my wife treated me, 
If you knew what she did, then you would know why I've done what I've done. If, if you knew the type of husband I have and the words that he has said, well, then you would understand why I have gone and found a new one. Then you would know that I, I know I said those things and I, I shouldn't have said them, but, she, but she's just overly sensitive. This is just an extreme reaction. If you knew my financial situation and my work pressures and all those things, you too would have stolen that money. Well, I'm sorry for doing it, but only if. And what we do is we shift blame. And this is the type of repentance that we repent and say sorry for, but at the end we never change because we never take ownership of it. And you see, this is a part of the importance of understanding that we have the ability to do great evil things. Because if you don't have that understanding of yourself, when you do great evil things, what happens is that you go, oh, it can't be me. This is not me. This is not my character. This is because of their actions and the the pressures that I am in that I have done. This is not me. And we never take full ownership of it. We always shift blame and do something else. You could blame your parents. You could blame your upbringing. You could blame your past. But you never, ever take ownership of this action for yourself. And it is extremely important here. We see that David does it. He, he owns it. He does not try to blame his situation. He doesn't blame his other wives. He doesn't blame Uriah. But she, he, he doesn't do anything. He just takes ownership of it. And that is extremely important for us to do. Stop shifting blame. Hear me here. The reason why you have done those things... While it might be true of your spouse, of your friends, of your situation, of your family, while all those things are true after your butts, they are not the cause of your sin. They are the occasion of it. You are the cause. You are the cause. And that is so important for us. If we're going to confess properly, that gives us freedom from the past who changes our character, who gives us a liberty in Christ, we need to take ownership of what we've done. All the things that Joey has messed up is not because of this person or that person, because of him or because of her or because of the situation. It's because it's in Joey and Joey's done it. We need to make sure we own it. That's when we have a full confession of faith. Stop shifting blame. Stop making excuses. Own it. The second thing that we find in this is, is the renunciation of sin, a deep heart renunciation. Let's look at the first part of verse 4 that we skipped. It says this, against you and you only have I sinned. Now we'll get back to that rather crazy statement made by David. But let me first just point out to you, when there's uh, in Semitic repetition of the subject, that sounds confusing, but when we, when we repeat in, in Scripture, sometimes the repeating of the subject uh, places an emphasis of longing, of passion, of love. And so I want you to hear here when David says, against you and you only have I sinned, there's this absolute heartbreak There's this longing for God. There's this love for him. He has realized what he has done. He has realized he sinned against God. He has realized that he's broken God's heart. And it is absolutely shattering David. We see examples of this in scripture with David being one. His son Absalom, who was trying to kill him and take his throne, um, got killed in war. And when David hears the news, he cries out, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. He is absolutely shattered. He did not want that to happen. He is heartbroken that he's son has been killed even though he was trying to kill him he's upset and his heart is shattered by it he longs to have Absalom back as it once was we see it with Jesus on the cross my God my God why have you forsaken me 
oh Lord, why have you left me? Jesus' heart is breaking at the abandonment of the Father because of our sins. And so when David says these words, I want you to hear that it's not just some throwaway comment, but his heart is breaking. And this is so important for us if we are going to renounce sin, is that our hearts need to break because of what we've done. But we'll come back to that. Let us look quickly at that statement that David made against you and you only have us. Seriously, David? Can we just, just stop for a moment and go, have you, are you really saying nobody else was sinned against in this situation? How about Bathsheba? She lived in a patriarchal society. She had no choice in the matter. When the king calls, you come. She had a husband. She, had a, she commits adultery through his actions on her. She falls pregnant even though her husband's at war. Can you imagine the confuse, uh, confusion that she must have experienced, the guilt, the shame, the, the usedness that David has just given her? I mean, it must be horrendous what's going on in her mind. And then her husband, by the way, gets killed. That is, surely she's been sinned against. And, they, and Scripture never, ever puts uh, blame at, Bath, at Bathsheba's feet at all, only at David's. So Bathsheba's been really treated badly, and she's been sinned against. You have Uriah, who was at war fighting for David. Uh, he has his wife. Uh, the king sleeps with his wife, and then he brings him home, tries to trick him into having a kid that's not his own kid, doesn't work, and then gets him murdered. And then when Uriah is in the front line and gets murdered, what has happened is when they get pulled back from the front line, Uriah is not the only one that dies that day. There are other men that die because of this act. And so there are multiple families throughout the whole of Israel that lose husbands and fathers because of David's actions. So how in the world can he have the audacity, if you will, to say against you and you only have I sinned? And the answer is actually quite simple. It's that he's using hyperbole, he's using metaphor. We see this with Jesus throughout scripture. He says at one stage, Jesus says, if you are going to be my disciples, you should hate your father and mother. It's hyperbole. He's not being literal there. It's the same way if I said Usain Bolt runs faster than the wind. He doesn't literally run faster than the wind, especially not East London wind. Because a whole lot is slower than that. If I say this pulpit weighs a ton, it's not literally a ton. It's hyperbole, it's a metaphor. So when Jesus says, you should, uh, if, if you're going to be my disciple, you should you hate your father and mother, what does he mean by that? He's, he's trying to say that your commitment to me must be so great. Your love for me must be so great. In comparison, it looks like you hate your father and mother. It would go against every other teaching of Christ to teach that it's literal. He gives the Pharisees horns, really gives them a tongue lashing for the fact that they do not look after their parents in old age, but rather would tie to the temple in a way of getting out. And he lays into them for it because they weren't keeping the commandments of our new father and mother. So Jesus would never mean that. That's what it actually really means. And so what does David mean here? Well, again, David does understand that he has sinned against other people, and that's not what he's trying to say. But what David has realized in all of this, that first and foremost, he has fundamentally sinned against God. That behind his sin and to all those people was first and foremost a sin against God. That he would not have done the sins against Bathsheba, against Uriah, and against all those other families if he had not sinned against God. So what is he saying to us? He's saying that behind every single one of our sins is another sin. First and foremost, fundamentally underlined it all is a sin against God. We see Martin Luther explain this well for us when uh, he uses the illustration or example of the, of the Ten Commandments. He says, if you're able to keep the first commandment, which is, I am the Lord your God and you shall have no other gods beside me, then you will keep all the other nine. 
But if you break any of the other nine, it means you had first broken, I am the Lord your God and you shall have no other gods beside me. So let's look at some of the examples in the Ten Commandments. So one of them is do not lie. Another one is do not commit adultery. The other one is do not murder. David really got all of those wrong. Um, and do not steal. And what we see here is, I mean, behind do not murder, the moment we murder, what has happened? We have taken God off his throne as the only God, and we have placed ourselves there as judge and as one that we should execute the power. When we steal, what have we done? We have taken God off the throne of the one who's our provider and our confidence, and we have placed this money or this possession as the thing that we find our confidence in. As we lie and as we, uh, as we tell other people things that aren't true, what happens is we have taken God off his throne and we have placed our reputation or the opinions of others before God. In every single one of those moments, we first break the first command before we break the rest. And the same way is with all our sin, is that we got to realize that we first break and sin against God before we've sinned against anyone else. And why that is important, because if we just have this idea that, man, we've just broken a law, we have just broken a rule, we're never ever going to get proper life change because there's no, there's no what's, the, what's the motive behind it? To change. I've just broken a law. But when we've realized that not only have we broken a law, not only have we disobeyed and broken the commandments of God's words, but rather that we have trampled and on the heart of God, that we have dishonored him, that we have grieved him in it, that we have sinned against him, that's when life change takes place. It's so much greater to realize that we have done something far worse than just breaking a silly law, but that we have broken the heart of God. And when our heart breaks, that God's heart is grieved and dishonored through our actions, that's when change happens. Without it, there will not be change. Because what will happen is if we do not have this element, we will uh, be repenting from the consequences of sin and not sin. And what, what that is, is a remorse without this element of our heart breaking, the remorse, uh, crying and weeping without this element, without our hearts breaking, is not repentance, it's self-pity. That's what it is. And self-pity is the love of self, where repentance is more a love for God and a love for those who we have sinned against. And so it is vital, it is vital that we first see that our hearts that we have sinned against God first, and let that break our hearts. When that happens, sin starts to leave its power on us. When that happens, we can start renouncing our sin properly. But where do we get the power to do that? Let's answer this last question. Where do we get the power to do that? Let's look at Psalm 51 verse 1. It says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. The word steadfast love here can be uh, means and has an emphasis of uh, undeserved and unconditional. It's, It's unconditional because it's undeserved. You have done nothing to earn it, therefore you can do nothing to unearn it. It's this wonderful balance that we have, this mixture that we have uh, one of the, the one element of that's undeserved, it, it humbles us a bit, gives us a sense of humility. We, we don't deserve it. it. If you will, pushes us into the ground that God would give us this love, even though we aren't worthy of it. But the other unconditional element gives us a sense of confidence that no matter what, God will love us. Derek uh, Kedner uh, says this with regards to this verse. He says, on the one hand, David senses his complete unworthiness, and on the other hand, a confidence that he still belongs. 
And that is so important for us to grasp. That we are loved unconditionally and we are loved with an undeserved love. Because if we miss one, what happens is if we feel that we are unworthy, but we don't have a confidence that God will love us regardless, what will happen is we all, we're never able to repent properly because what we do is we just beat ourselves up. I'm not good enough. I, I'm never there. I, I got, you're never able to experience and receive the grace of God that he has for you because you're constantly beating yourself up rather than resting in his fullness and unconditional love for you. But if you have a, a confidence but not an unworthiness, you never repent. You just have self-pity. And so there's this importance that we have this both. So how do we get that? Well, the Lord's Prayer helps us to a degree. Because when we start off with our Father in heaven, those two elements, remember, one talks about the magnitude and holiness of God, His greatness in heaven. Or it gives us immediately as we spend time meditating on that and praising God for His greatness, immediately there's this humility that we need. But at the same time, our Father gives us the confidence that He will love us regardless. Love us with the steadfast fullness of love. But however, there's still more that we need. And it is only found when we look at the cross. It is only when we look at the cross properly do we realize that God loves us with an unconditional love. And man, do we realize in full the unworthiness of his love towards us, that his own son would die for us. That's where we get the power to renunciate sin properly, to renounce sin properly, sorry. We see this even in the story of David a little bit, to be honest. We can see God's great love through Christ for us. Tim Keller, when preaching on this passage, he, he says what we, we see at the end of the story is that David's son dies. It's, a, it's a, the, the son that um, Bathsheba fell pregnant with will die soon after birth. It's a horrific end to a horrific story. And when you read the, the story, it kind of seems like, man, this has happened because of David's sin. This is the punishment that David, the, to the child, that this is what's happened because of that. And, and it's not the case. Fortunately enough, the, uh, uh, the prophet Nathan says to David in uh, 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, he says, the Lord has put away your sin. The Lord has already dealt with your sin before he even tells David that his son, uh, that Bathsheba is pregnant with, is going to die. And how can we be really confident of this? Because David's sin is not paid for by the death of his own son, but his sin is paid for by the death of God's son. David, uh, when he said, Lord, cast me not from your presence, God does not do that. Why? Because he cast Christ from his presence. My God, my God, why would you forsake me? Why would you cast me out? All the things that David asked God not to do, God does not do them because he does them to Christ. And in that, what we see is this incredible love of God for us. We see the unworthiness of his love, but yet his unconditional love to us, even when we have messed up royally. We see this for us. This is the secret to change. Is that when we realize what we do breaks the heart of God. And man, this is his unconditional love, but unworthiness love towards us. Tim Keller gives us an illustration to help us understand that. He says, imagine uh, your, your, one of your spouse, your spouse or your closest, dearest friend or your family member that you love the most. You don't have to tell them which one that is. But the, the one that you love the most suddenly gets shot by an arrow and dies. It's a strange illustration, but what happens is at the end of, uh, they take them away, and the person who dealt with the body comes to you and says, here's the arrow, I thought you might want to keep it. I thought you might want to have as a memoir. You're just going, well, sorry, like, no, I don't want that. 
Can you get that away from me? I'm not going to take it home and put it on my wall. It's like, get that away from me. And he says, the same is with when we look at Christ and the cross and his unconditional steadfast love for us is that we realize that our sin has placed him there and the sin that we do is like an arrow that has put Christ on it. And when we realize that that has put Christ there, we, we don't want anything to do with that anymore. Get it away from me. And so while we might have this habitual sin, when we realize that the death of Christ came at a cost to get that away, we look at it and go, man, get that arrow away. And with that, we're able to renounce sin because we no longer just hate the consequence of sin, but we hate sin itself. And we're able to go, put that aside. I no longer want that. That there gives us the power to renounce the sin in our lives. Last comment, and then we'll pray. This has to be done daily. Life change and freedom and the peace that comes with this needs to be done daily. How do I know that it needs to be done daily? Because in the previous petition that we prayed in the Lord's Prayer, it is give us our daily bread. This prayer is something that needs to be done daily. This is not something that we do only when we mess up once every, well, it depends how bad you are, but once every six weeks really badly. It's not only then do we do this. We do this every single day. We ask the Holy Spirit to call to mind the sins that we've done, and we repent, and we ask God, friends, when that happens, when we do that well, oh, man, we are able to rest in the grace of Christ in its fullness. We're able to enjoy him. We're able to become like him. We're able to experience peace. We're able to enjoy him in his fullness as we remove and change and become like Christ and become passionate for him. Repent. Own it. Make sure that you uh, confess it, don't blame anyone else, and renounce it, and they will change.